Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Did you know that February 14th, also known as Valentine's Day, is also National Organ Donor Day and Congenital Heart Defect Awareness Day? Wow, how many different labels can you put on one day? But today is National Organ Donation Day, and it seemed only fitting that we have an encore presentation that lives up to that title, and that is Organ Donation and Transplantation. And we have fabulous guests for you to listen to today. Today's guests are Heart Mom Eileen Perlman, CHD survivor Jessica Cohen, and Heart Moms Kathy Keller and Emily Weibke as well as CHD survivor Anthony Pugliese. All of these wonderful guests will be discussing their experiences waiting for and or receiving a heart. You don't want to miss today's presentation. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy this presentation, organ donation and transplantation. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. Featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the third episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy. For many of us in the congenital heart defect community, heart transplantation is something that is mentioned early after the diagnosis. For some of us, it is the only recourse. For others, it is the measure of last resort. That is what the doctors told me when preparing for my son's second open-heart surgery. When I asked about heart transplantation, they told me that as long as Alex's heart could manage on its own, that was the best course for him. Only if things became dire would Alex be listed for a heart transplant. Every 10 minutes, another name is added to the National Organ Transplant Waiting List. More than 120,000 men, women, and children currently need life-saving organ transplants. The United Network for Organ Sharing also reports that an average of 18 people die each day from a lack of available organs for transplant. Jessica Cohen and Anthony Pugliese know what it's like to be on that waiting list. They also know what it's like to finally receive an organ that allows them to live another day. Emily Weebke, Kathy Keller, and Eileen Perlman will share with us what it's like to be the mother of a heart transplant recipient. With 90% of Americans saying they support donation, but only 30% taking the essential steps to become a donor, this episode focuses on answering questions about who needs organ donation, why it is so important to donate organs, and the difference organ donation can make in the lives of families. That's why our topic, organ donation and transplantation, is so important. Eileen has two daughters, 
Jessica and Amy Cohen. While pregnant with Jessica, she thought everything was fine. Jessica was born on June 7, 1983. Doctors began monitoring her heart due to an irregular heartbeat. Three days later, after excessive testing, she had emergency surgery because she had hypoplastic left heart syndrome. By 13, she had had all of the palliative surgeries and revised Fontan because her heart was failing. In August of 1999, Jessica was listed for a heart transplant. Being listed at home meant it could take 6 to 12 months to get a heart. However, on September 25, 1999, they were called to the hospital for a new heart. She received the heart of a local 15-year-old. At 26, she was told that the doctors could not do a routine catheterization because her creatinine or kidney levels were too high and it would shut her kidneys down. Her kidneys failed due to her anti-rejection medications. On April 2, 2009, Amy gave her big sister a kidney to save her life again. We'll meet Emily Wiebke and Kathy Keller, mothers of transplant recipients, and Anthony Pugliese, an adult survivor of a heart transplant, later on in the show. Let's start by talking to Eileen and Jessica. Eileen, did you have any idea when Jessica was a baby that someday she might need a heart transplant, much less a kidney transplant, too? I had no idea of either. When she was born, unlike today, where heart defects like Jessica's show up in routine sonograms, We had no idea there was anything wrong with Jessica's heart. So when she was born and there was an irregular heartbeat, we were told what the three surgeries would be to save her life, and there was no mention at all of a heart transplant. Oh, really? Not any mention at all? No. No, it wasn't until she was five when we were getting ready for the Fontan that Mayo had given us a second opinion, and they said that at some point she would be a candidate for a heart transplant. Wow. It's hard to believe, but with her being born in 1983, she's one of the pioneers for hypoplastic left heart syndrome. She's one of the earliest survivors of HOHS. In all that time, were you told that stage four of the palliative care was considered heart transplantation? No. No. Not until she was five, as I said before. We had no idea that she would need a heart transplant. So we just hoped that all the surgeries they were doing would carry her through and that she would be okay. And now I'm finding out that she is one of the earliest survivors, and it's really hit me in the last year or so, and she's 30. It's really hit me how much it means to me and to her because we just had no idea that the survival rate was what it is. So So where did she have her first surgery? All of her surgeries were at Children's Memorial Hospital, which is now Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. They recently moved about two years ago, I think. They moved downtown Chicago, but all her surgeries were at Children's. So it sounds to me like it was maybe surprising for you when you found out that Jessica had to have a heart transplant. Can you tell us about how you felt about it and if there was a certain event that brought that about? It was right before her Fontan, and Children's, they were telling me something that seemed discrepant with what they had told us earlier when she was little, you know, when she was a baby. And so our doctor, Dr. Cole, told us that if we wanted a second opinion, we could go to Mayo, and he got us into Mayo, and we went, and Mayo basically said that they agreed with everything Children's would do for the Fontan, and they would just add one little thing in 
they checked with children's to see if they could do whatever that procedure was at children's could so we stayed at children's and that was the first really that we had talked about heart transplants and it was kind of hard to wrap my mind around it because Mm -hmm. it just seemed so you know we hadn't even been through the third surgery yet so Mm -hmm. it was kind of hard to even think beyond that to a transplant so it was kind of an eye-opener for me and once we got through the Fontan and I knew she was doing better I just kind of just was dealing with whatever we needed to deal with and I tried not to think that far ahead. Right. For those of our listeners who maybe are not familiar with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you and I are intimately familiar with it since both of our children have hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Right. This syndrome causes so many problems with the heart that there is no way to fix the heart. The heart is actually changed from a four-chamber pumping heart into a two-chamber pumping heart, and there are three surgeries the children go through. The first one is typically a Norwood or a modified Norwood. The second one is usually the Glen, or sometimes known as a bidirectional Glen. And then the third surgery is called the Fontan procedure, and it's that last procedure that really changes the heart so that the sole purpose of the heart is to pump blood to the body, and it travels passively to the lungs. So we're making major changes to the heart. So it's not really unfathomable that our children's hearts might fail and need to be transplanted. But I think as parents, it's something that is almost unfathomable to us. Would you agree with that, Arlene? Definitely. It's hard to even think that they're going to take something out of your child's body and put something else in there. So it's very hard to think that that's going to happen. Absolutely. So, Jessica, you've been through a lot in the last decade and a half of your life. Not many people have survived, not one, but two transplants. And you were just a teenager when you were listed for a heart transplant. Can you tell me how that affected your life? And did you have to quit school? Were you allowed to do regular activities? Were you too exhausted? I know people are curious to know how you were at that time. Well, as a teenager, any teenager in junior high and high school wants to be involved in that normal kind of transition phase of your life. And I really started getting sick at the end of seventh grade is when I was missing a lot of school, just not feeling well. My mom would call me out, and then I would stay home sick. And as I progressed eighth grade and freshman year in high school, I was missing probably half the year with yeah. when it added up to probably more when it added up to days I was staying home sick just because I was too sick to, I'd walk three steps and be so tired that mm-hmm. I'd have to go back and lay down. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much that aside from, you know, doctor's appointments was my life. And I was used to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I obviously wanted. I mean, sure. I wanted to be in school with my friends and I have the same friends from high school that were with me. They knew everything going on and it was just hard to be removed from the social activities and even the learning. You feel very behind. Sure. You don't know what to do when you're not in school. And I I was restless, but I really didn't have energy and Mm -hmm. I always wanted to play softball or kickball or anything. I was really active and into sports when I was younger, but I never was allowed to play because my cardiologist was like, you know, they said, well, anything involving a ball that could be aimed right at your chest is not a good idea. So I was also not allowed to really play any sports that I wanted to. I don't know otherwise. I don't know how my life 
would have been otherwise. I mean, it affected my life because I missed a lot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I really, there was a, there was just stuff I needed to do to get well. And that's all I knew. I knew doctor's appointments. I knew being homesick, what that was. And it was just something I adapted to at a young age. I was always missing school. So. Oh, really? So even before you started on your path towards transplant, even before that, you missed a lot of days of school? I mean, not as many as I did in seventh grade, but there were definitely sick days. Mm-hmm. And my teachers and friends knew up front and knew that it was expected or, you know, the, the reason why it would be missing. So Right. It's not like you were playing always, hooky. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> not at all. I, I really enjoyed school. I really liked school, and I was trying to do my best in junior high, high school for college. Like, right. You know, and, I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to go to college and get my degree, but it set me back. It did set me back a few years. I can only imagine. I know that your little sister gave you one of her kidneys, and that must have been such an emotional decision for all of you. Can you share what that was like with us? Yeah, I told the social worker, and I told her that she wasn't allowed to do that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Knowing full well, she was most likely my only option of a living donor. I really just didn't want her to have to go through the pain of surgery or, I mean, I didn't want her to have to feel responsible like she had to do that. And I know that was one of the questions I asked her right up front. I'm like, I don't want you doing this. Just, you know, I don't, you don't need to go through surgery. And she's like, but I want to do this and you have no choice. (laughs) I mean, we kind of both said you have no choice to each other. And, you know, she won. She won. If she won, she won that one, definitely. Well, I'm so glad she did because life wouldn't be the same without you. Yeah, and, you know, and I want to be here. I want to, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to wait five years or more on a waiting list, and I don't think I would have survived waiting that long. So I'm very grateful that she overruled me on that. (laughs) One of the few times little sister was allowed to win. Yeah, uh, she won a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Eileen and Jessica. I so appreciate you sharing with our listeners. And now we have to take a break for a commercial. But when we get back, you'll get to meet the mothers of two children who have also endured heart transplantation and find out when we get back why Emily and Kathy's children needed heart transplants, how long their wait was, and how they're doing now when we return. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, A handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. 
Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with members of the congenital heart defect community, dealing with the topic of organ donation and transplantation. My guests today are parents Eileen Perlman, Emily Wiebke, and Kathy Keller, and transplant recipients Jessica Cohen and Anthony Pugliese. We just finished talking with Eileen Perlman and Jessica Cohen, a mother and daughter pair who have been affected by transplantation. Now we will turn our attention to two other mothers. Emily Wiebke has a wonderful daughter named Ariana, who was born on April 20, 2003. She was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart becomes weakened and enlarged, unable to pump effectively at seven and a half months of age. It was decided that she would need a heart transplant. She was hospitalized at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Children's Hospital for 419 days, 356 days listed for a transplant. Ariana's transplant occurred December 31, 2004. During that time, Emily did not work. She was with Ariana all the time. She had never thought about organ donation beyond the yes on her driver's license before Ariana was listed. Ariana's transplant has changed her family's lives. Emily has spoken a few times to groups for the Iowa Donor Network. Emily is a member of Mended Little Hearts of Southeast Minnesota, even though she lives in Iowa. It is sometimes scary for Emily to think of the time Ariana will need another heart, but her family is ready. Our other guest this segment is Kathy Keller. Kathy's 16-year-old son, Garrett, is a heart transplant recipient. He was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which requires several open-heart surgeries. He did well, but had complications, including a significant stroke. When he was 12, his heart failed, and he was listed for transplant. After two years, he finally received his gift of life on his 14th birthday in 2011. During his wait and recovery, their family was split across two states. As a family breadwinner, Kathy continued working to support the family. Kathy's husband, Dennis, and she only got to see each other for 15 minutes twice a week while they switched who was with Garrett in Philadelphia and who was with their younger son in Virginia. They did this for seven months because Garrett's recovery was full of complications. He spent 12 weeks in the intensive care unit as well as eight weeks in inpatient rehabilitation. Garrett is a fighter, and though he has deficits from both his first stroke and his difficult recovery, he's doing amazingly well. So let's start with Emily. Emily, what struck me most when I first read your bio was you saying how scary it is to think about Ariana needing another heart someday. How much time does a heart transplant recipient usually have with their heart? Well, we were told when she was listed and then when again she got her heart that usually about 10 to 15 years 
out from that that they would need another transplant. And she is almost nine years out, 1231, so December 31st, she'll be nine years. And she has had her share of rejections and things, but we can see that that is on the horizon. Glad we were forewarned about that. Yeah, it is good to be forewarned, but that also probably adds to your stress and anxiety. Oh, definitely that has happened. Do you have support with other transplant parents to talk about how you feel and to see how you're dealing with it? Oh, we have lots of friends. In fact, I have a very close heart mom to me that both of her daughters had transplant plants (gasps) because of dilated cardiomyopathy. Wow, she had two children? With the same operation? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So, Kathy, how long did Garrett's doctors think his transplanted heart would last for him? Um, very similar to what Emily was told. We were told about 10 years. Garrett's probably not a candidate for a second heart because of his brain injury and his complications. But that said, the way we look at it is, and maybe it's just uh, how we think we try to be optimistic, is that that's 10 years for science to progress things to change, who knows what could happen. So we're just kind of taking it one day at a time. That's what I love about And that is exactly what I love about you and Dennis, Kathy. I think I've known the two of you for over a decade, and you're both very positive people, and I like to think like you do. I know that transplant is possibly in Alex's future since he also has hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and I'm looking forward to the day they can clone a heart because then they can take our children's own heart cells, grow a heart for them in the lab. They won't have to worry about anti-rejection drugs because it'll be their own heart, and their body will take it and use it the way that it was supposed to be used. And so I'm very hopeful that for Garrett's sake, for all of the children, Ariana, that that is going to be down the pike, and I hope it happens fast enough for our children to benefit from it. So, mm, Me too. And the other thing we remember is that's a 10-year-old statistic. Exactly. So who knows? Yes, exactly. And science is not where it was 10 years ago. So I think you're right to be optimistic. I'm very optimistic as well. Emily, your daughter was born with dilated cardiomyopathy, which I stumbled over when I first said it because unlike hypoplastic left heart syndrome, this is not something that I have heard about a whole lot. In fact, most people usually associate dilated cardiomyopathy with athletes who suddenly pass away on a ball field. So how common is it to be born with this specific congenital heart defect? And is transplant their only option? Well, from what we have learned over time, especially when they're diagnosed as young as Ariana was at seven and a half months, and actually she'd been getting sick by about six months, we started noticing things, um, that these children are usually the ones born with it. Um, The athletes that you hear about um, usually have um, some kind of acquired dilated cardiomyopathy or sometimes can even be idiopathic where they're not sure Mm -hmm. why they suddenly have this problem with their heart. Um, When they're born with it, um, usually they're before a year old that they're diagnosed. And unfortunately, um, they have a much faster progression of the disease Mm -hmm. than those who are older. Um, where transplantation usually is their only option. There's no surgeries to fix what's wrong with their heart. Um, medication and transplant is the only things really that can be done to save their lives, and it does. I, you know, we realize that transplant is not a cure, mm-hmm. but it certainly is better than the alternative. Exactly. So, you know, when you, with the dilated cardiomyopathy, it can be hard to understand that, um, 
these are not the kids that are running around and suddenly pass away. That these are these are kids that don't aren't able to tell us what's going on or if something's mm-hmm. wrong. So how did you find out that that is what she had? It took. Well, we always counted down as twenty days. Um, she um, had gotten very sick and had started having um, multiple emesis, and I had taken her to. And notice now that we call it emesis, we no longer, you know, say throw up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you for describing what that meant for our listeners. Not everybody. I've, that's a very gentle way of saying vomit or throw up. <laughs> had a problem and we'd taken her in and she said oh they have she has a double ear infection and gave her antibiotics for 10 days and in 10 days she wasn't doing any better in fact was doing worse and they said well let's try the antibiotics for another 10 days and you bring her back if she isn't doing any better and I took her in and they finally did a chest Mm x-ray and said her heart's enlarged you need to go to Iowa City Uh, it was 20 days wow that's amazing so, meanwhile, is she also going into congestive heart failure? She had, um, when we finally got to the doctors, or to the ER in Iowa City, she was at 12% heart function. Wow. So, she was very sick. Um, we drove her ourselves from, we lived in Dubuque, Iowa at the time, about an hour and a half from Iowa City. And we drove ourselves, and when we got there, they told us that she could have passed away at any time during yeah. that drive. Yeah, I cannot believe that the hospital did not life flight her. Why did they send you? Did they think it would actually be faster if you took her yourself? I, I think it wasn't. I think no one realized how sick she was. Wow. I, I can't believe they didn't put her in an ambulance where she could have a nurse and somebody monitoring her the entire way. I have to tell you, even now I look back on it and think to myself, God had his hands on us and <laughs> yes. just watched us the entire way there. Yes, absolutely. That is such a scary scenario. So, uh, Kathy, Garrett was born with the same heart defect as Jessica, who we heard from earlier. Were you told after his diagnosis that he might need a transplant someday? Um, we were, and actually it was interesting because we were told in two places about his heart defect. The first place we were told was our local hospital that didn't really know that much about hypoplastic left heart syndrome, so it was pretty grim, and uh, they told us that we could do uh, pet, you know, comfort care, which is basically hospice, that we could um, have a heart transplant right away, but the odds of getting a heart were pretty much none because of, he was so small and infant. Or we could go through the three-stage surgery. So we decided to obviously do that. But then when we were life-flighted to Philadelphia, we were presented with kind of a different story. And it was definitely much more optimistic about the three-stage surgeries with, of course, a heart transplant being a possibility, but not kind of a definite. So it was just two different centers with two really different perspectives. Well, yeah. And and for those in the heart community who know about the history of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, Dr. Norwood created the first operation that gave any of us parents any hope for survival. Before that, all of the children went home with comfort care or compassionate care or hospice, whatever word you want to use, but they all passed away. And then Dr. Norwood, who was working um, at Boston Children's Hospital, created his procedure, and then he moved to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and so he was there for many years. So I'm sure CHOP was quite aware of what was going on, and and they were some of the first survivors, were the children who were treated at CHOP. So, Kathy, were you surprised when the doctors told you that they needed to list Garrett on the transplant list? 
Uh, no, because he had developed a complication called plastic bronchitis, which is very rare, uh, luckily. But it's it's a it's a complication where basically your heart creates these plugs in your lungs, and you have to cough them up, and it's pretty awful actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a choking hazard, oxygen levels go down. So he had been struggling with it for about two years, and he was on and off the list. The plastic bronchitis would go into remission, and then it would come back. Mm. And it just got finally to a point where there was just no other option. One thing they did tell us, though, is that there was no guarantee that the transplant was going to cure the plastic bronchitis. Oh, my gosh. That must have been so scary. So here you might go through this horrible operation and still have the plastic bronchitis. So, right. And oh, he wow. did for four weeks for the transplant. <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. So, and that it was just it clearing up and his body readjusting. Mm-hmm. But um, pretty scary four weeks to think that we had put him through it and potentially and he had another brain injury and that we didn't fix anything. Wow. But it cleared up. That's and um, What a blessing. He hasn't had it since. <laughs> Wow. So, Emily, both you and Kathy had to do a lot of traveling for the transplant. You both had to go to different states. Can you give our listeners any advice when it comes to having to travel or live someplace else for an extended period of time while waiting for and recovering from heart transplant surgery? Um, Get to know your Ronald McDonald house, if there is one. Just the most magnificent place um, ever to people that thought of something like that, that, yes, we need to have a place for these families. Um, That really was a lifesaver for us. Um, My husband kept working. Um, Obviously, you know, we had to have, uh, you know, an income still coming in. And um, I have an older son, two older sons, and so, you know, dad had to be there. And it really was about organization. When are you coming? Mm. Where where do we meet? Do you Mm -hmm. want to come up? Just lots of organization and knowing kind of where you're at, where you need to be, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all excellent advice. Well, thank you, Emily and Kathy, so much. I really appreciate you sharing your experiences with our listeners. But now it's time for a commercial break. But when we get back, you'll get to meet Anthony Pugliese and find out what his experience was with heart transplantation. Back in a few. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more.
You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today, we are talking with members of the congenital heart defect community dealing with the topic of organ donation and transplantation. My guests today are parents Eileen Perlman, Emily Wiebke, and Kathy Keller, and transplant recipients Jessica Cohen and Anthony Pugliese. So we've heard the experiences of two mothers, Jessica Cohen, who, like Anthony, is a heart transplant recipient, and then we also talked to we talked to three mothers and Jessica Cohen, who was a transplant recipient. So Anthony Pugliese was born in 1964 with a single ventricle heart with pulmonary stenosis and transposition of the great arteries. He had his first open heart surgery at 10 months of age, his second at age 14, and his third and final open heart surgery at age 20. At age 33, he developed atrial fibrillation, but thanks to medications, he suffered no problems until age 44. That's when he started to become weaker. Anthony was placed on a heart transplant list on January 26, 2009, and received his new heart on March 26, 2009. He served on the board of directors for eight years for the Adult Congenital Heart Association. He currently volunteers at the Center for Organ Recovery and Education. He's also a founding committee member of a heart transplant support group in Pittsburgh and is a member of the Pittsburgh Transplant Olympic team. He feels great and counts each day as a blessing, and he owes it all to a young man who signed an organ donor card. So, Anthony, you are much older than the other heart transplant recipients that we've talked to today. Did you think that someday you were going to need a heart transplant? Uh, yeah, I knew exactly after my last surgery at age 20 that eventually I would need a transplant. Uh, basically, that was the last procedure that I can do to keep my heart going. Um, really didn't think it would go as long as it did. But uh, through the grace of God and medicine keep going on and on as it does for us heart CHD people, uh, the time came, and um, it was the right time. Yeah. It's amazing to me that you had a surgery at 10 months of age and then you didn't have your second one until you were 14 years old. What was the first surgery that you had? Uh, it was a Baylog cussing shunt. Mm-hmm. And basically I had to have it again at 14 because I outgrew the first shunt. Oh, so they did a BT shunt on you again instead of doing a bidirectional glen or the Fontan? Right, and the Fontan was when I was 20 because I had just started doing the Fontans uh, on older kids. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. So you're really, and don't take this the wrong way, but you're kind of an old man for a single ventricle survivor. There aren't too many that are your age who have done as well as you have. Well, that's very true. And I'm fortunate that next year I will be celebrating two birthdays. One will be my fifth anniversary of my heart transplant. And then exactly a month later, I'll be celebrating my 50th birthday. So... Well, I hope you have a major celebration for that. That sounds just amazing. So how did getting a new heart change your life? Uh, It allowed me to do things that I hadn't done before. I had been on disability uh, since 33, was on disability and working part-time when I got the heart. And then I went back to work part-time 
until July of 2011 when I moved to uh, Jerusalem, Israel. And that allowed me to do some traveling that I have never done. Uh, unfortunately, I came back to the States. I have yet to be able to find some part-time work to keep me going. But, uh, you know, I cut grass, I shovel snow, um, do all the kind of things you do in the wintertime and in the summertime up in Pennsylvania. As far as yard work goes, I have a little more energy than I did before. Um, yeah, and there are some drawbacks. There's some side effects of the medication that you take that uh, affect you on a daily basis, but uh, it's better than the alternative. Absolutely. You can shovel snow with the transplanted heart. That's a really high-impact uh, activity. I'm I'm amazed that you can do that. That's a very aerobic activity. Well, I laugh because the year after my transplant, came, we had gone to Disney and came back, and there was a snowstorm of like 27 inches <gasps> the day before we came back. Oh and I'm out shoveling my snow, and everybody's coming down. You can't shovel snow. I said, why? <laughs> they said, you had a heart transplant. And I jokingly said to my wife at the time, I said, nobody gave a thorn about me shoveling snow last year when I was in heart failure. <laughs> oh, no. So, so you were I've, shoveling I've snow? Always, with... I've always shoveled snow. Oh, my gosh. In I just, heart I, I just failure? I took my time. Yeah, I just took my time. I was in heart failure. Um, oh, my gosh, Anthony. Just when everything started going haywire. Oh, uh, my goodness. So, but, okay, yeah, so I, I you couldn't use a, a snow blower? I mean, that wasn't well, an option? <laughs> well, I could but uh, I didn't have the money for a snow blower. I actually was hoping that my, uh, you know, my son would come out and shovel snow, but he had, uh, you know, he had other things to do, I guess. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you were shoveling snow in heart failure and then after you get a brand-new heart. Wow. You're amazing, Anthony. So tell me what you want our listeners to know about organ donation and transplantation. Organ donation is the simplest thing you can do. You just sign a donor card or sign your license. Uh, I go and speak at hospitals for new employees and different places, and I've heard everything that nobody wants my organs to know. I heard what they do to your organs in a hospital. I'm like, you guys work in the hospital. Do you not realize what they do? They, they keep you alive. Everybody has a concept that if, if you're taken to a hospital, they're just going to not do anything to save your life before they take your organs, which is you know, totally unethical. They have to do everything in their power to save your life first. And you also have to be declared brain dead by two doctors before anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate because the night before I got my transplant, the doctor came in and told me I was also in kidney failure. So <gasps> oh I was really, goodness. I mean, I was at the end, mm-hmm. seriously, of my life. And eight hours later, he came back and said, we have a 22-year-old heart for you. Do you want it? Wow. As to which I said, well, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, what uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know is that when you go into heart failure, the, the next process is to go into what they call multiple organ failure. Right. And once that happens, then you may not even be a, re- a recipient for a heart it really depends on what your condition is. Luckily, they caught you right before, it sounds like, there would have been that domino effect. Well, it was, you know, it's with uh, congenital heart patients, we have our ups and downs. And as mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing good, you're doing good. Mm-hmm. But when you go down, and it can, can be so fast. You can exactly. go real fast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's the main problem that we have uh, is trying to get congenital heart patients 
uh, who are well enough, but not you know you got not too well, and you can't be too sick to be on the transplant list. So there's a fine line. So it's you know, a that, very fine line. That three months was my fine line. Wow. Uh, well, and you're so lucky. Three months. There are a lot of people. We just talked with one mother whose child was who waited over a year. I mean, to me, that's just amazing that she had to deal with that for over a year. I'm sure three months felt like a year for you, especially. Oh yeah. Especially, oh, yeah. you can't do what you've normally been able to do. Well, I did everything up until the day, the Friday I went to the hospital. I actually went for a checkup, and I was retaining uh, 25 liters of fluid. And, I, you know, they said, well, we'll do a hard cap on Monday. I said, well, I'll stay, and let's see if we can get this fluid off. And it, it just didn't work. So we never even did the cap because uh, we couldn't get anything. I didn't need water to come off. So, so did, yeah, they give you, did they give you Lasix? And oh, yeah. Uh, IV Lasix, everything else, yeah. Oh, wow. It was a scary time. But, you know, it, it, I was ready for it. You, you go through a lot before you're even put on the transplant list, and part of it is to have a psychological evaluation. Mm. Can and you tell they, us more about they, that? Well, you go in and they say, you know, they do all kind of medical tests, blood testing and stuff like that. But the psychological testing is they're trying to see if you're able to accept the fact that you need a transplant. And I walked in, I'm like, okay, what's what's the problem? The girl's like, you're very calm. I said, well, you know, I'm 44. I've known about this since I was 20. Right. So, I mean, it's not like it's a big shock to me. It's yeah. just, so. But you were uh, at a level of acceptance that I bet not all people are at. No. No. In fact, I've led a, met a lot of, uh, with this heart transplant support group that we started. I started with two other friends. Uh, one was in denial that, mm-hmm. that he needed a heart transplant, but he was technically only on a list for two hours. That's how bad he was. But he was like, well, wow. no, let's try something else. And uh, he turned 72 last month. Wow. And uh, he has done really, really well. Uh, a lot of our the people who are coming to our group are newer people who are getting transplants. Uh, they've left the hospital in as little as five days. Uh, That's I was amazing. For, I was in for 30. Uh, but but even that, 30 days, I mean. After that, a transplant, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, five to seven days after, it's like, geez. That, I was jealous of that. I'm like, yeah. wow. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. Well, Anthony, I've known you for such a long time because you wrote an essay for my book, The Heart of a Father. And at that time, you wrote about what it was like to become a father. How has having a heart transplant affected Evan, your son? Uh, Evan was, God bless him, he was six when I got sick at age 33. Uh, and he is such a sweet and caring child that he, you know, he wanted to take care of me. Uh, and up and through the transplant, he wanted to take care of me after the transplant. Uh, you know, he kind of was like, he kind of like took over the household. So to speak, and yeah, he did really well with it. He had a large support group around him: uh, his school, uh, my family, his mom's family. Uh, but then the problem came in. He was 16, and mm. you know, giving back that parent-child role wasn't easy for him. Yeah, and it's still not easy for him. Um, and he's having a hard time right now because you know his mother and I are divorced, and uh, he's you know like any other kid, you know. He was hoping that we would get back together, but sure. it just didn't work out that way. But he's still caring. He can, you know, he can still overshadow me at times when I'm doing something, and it's like you can't do that. And it's like, yeah, I can do that. I can do anything I need to do. Um, but you know, it's it was a rough life for him, and I, you know, I feel bad. No, you know, as parents with heart children, 
it's one thing. But when you're the parent that has the heart condition, you're trying to raise, you know, in my case, a son who wanted to do sports and all that kind of stuff with me, and I get sick at age when he's six and then better at when he's 16, and then I still can't go out and throw the ball because I still have, you know, issues in the heat and humidity and uh, not so much in the cold, but with the heat and humidity that you know, I, I couldn't do that kind of stuff. And it was a rough, you know, rough time for him. And, you know, uh, he's been working on a lot of stuff uh, in counseling. And uh, right now I'm just giving him his space until, you know, he's ready to talk and stuff. Uh, I, I think he's a little disappointed that the marriage didn't work, especially after we all uh, moved to Israel, that it didn't mm. work out. And that was a rough time for all of us. Medically, uh, I had excellent health care over there in Israel. A lot of people were concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the, uh, one of the uh, top uh, heart transplant surgeons take care of me over there. Um, you know, had the same kind of test I had here in the states. I had my uh, third year biopsy and cath in Israel, no problem at all. Wow. Well, you're just when you travel, you just got to make sure you're near a transplant clinic. And that's excellent advice. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today, Anthony and. Now we're ready for our last commercial break, but tune in for our miracle moments when we get back. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with members of the congenital heart defect community dealing with the topic of organ donation and transplantation. My guests today are parents Eileen Perlman, her daughter Jessica Cohen, mother Emily Weebke and Kathy Keller, and then transplant recipient Anthony Pugliese and Jessica Cohen also is a transplant recipient. I want to thank my guests. 
Eileen Perlman, Jessica Cohen, Emily Wiebke, Kathy Keller, and Anthony Pugliese today for coming on our show and for sharing their experiences. I think they've all done a really excellent job of showing us why organ donation is so important. I hope that all of our listeners will take the time to talk to their families about organ donation today. I know that my family has sat down and discussed how we feel about organ donation, and we've actually even written it down so that there is no question about that. In fact, I've seen a wonderful bumper sticker that says, don't take your organs to heaven. Heaven knows we need them here. So now for the final part of our show, our miracle moment. And today's miracle moment is from the book, The Heart of a Mother, and it is written by Dawn Martin. In the interest of time, I won't be able to read Dawn's essay in its entirety, but you can read it if you go to any Amazon.com website, it is available, The Heart of a Mother. Look for The Heart of a Mother Jaworski and you can find it. Or you can go to babyheartspress.com and you can order it from our website. The essay Dawn wrote is called The Right Heart for Travis, and I'm going to share excerpts from the book. Dawn writes, On February 8th, one of Travis's doctors informed me that a heart might be available It was a shock that it might happen so quickly. We had been told that six to seven weeks was an average wait, even though they said that there really was no way to determine averages. Within a few hours, we found out that we would have to wait a little longer. The heart was not suitable for Travis. I was disappointed, but not crushed. I had been warned that this could happen. Over the next month and a half, Travis's weak body faced many challenges. He seemed to run a fever continuously and was admitted to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, or PICU, more than once. On one occasion, we almost lost Travis. With a rising fever and more difficulty with his breathing, he was transferred back to the PICU. But during his move, his kidneys failed and his blood pressure bottomed out. It took nearly two hours for the doctors to stabilize him, our biggest fear that we would lose Travis before our heart became available, was quickly becoming a reality. I refused to give up hope. Travis was a fighter. He had proven that already. Travis recovered, and by March 25th was back in the intensive care unit, and we were looking forward to having him back in a private room. Just a few days before, one of Travis's doctors informed us that he was in perfect condition to receive a transplant. On March 27, 1993, my husband and I were on a date. Grandpa had taken to spending Saturday nights with his favorite guy, so Mom and Dad could have a little time to hang out with each other. We were at the circus when a quiet, suspenseful moment came, and we both heard the pager go off, the pager that told us a heart was available. I have never run so fast in my life. We made it to the hospital in record time. I scooped my baby into my arms, somehow knowing that he would now be all right. Thank you for listening today. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern Time for a brand new episode. During the month of February, also known as Heart Month, Heart to Heart with Anna will broadcast a show every day. On Tuesdays, we'll have a brand new show featuring our theme for Season 7, Congenital Heart Defects Around the Globe. The other days will be encore presentations with a brand new intro. If you'd like to know what shows will be featured, you can check out our website at www.hearttoheartwithanna.com. Please find and like us on Facebook. Check out our Café Press Boutique. Revenue from the Café Press Boutique helps to defray the cost of this radio show. Follow our radio show on Blog Talk Radio and especially on Spreaker. 
Once we get to 100 followers on Spreaker, we can petition iHeartRadio to carry our show, and then people can listen to Heart to Heart with Anna in their cars. Thanks again for listening. We know that congenital heart defects touch people all over the globe. So remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week.